you may be seated. Well, today we find ourselves in our fourth week in our study of the book of Joshua. And already we've already covered the first two chapters of the book. And uh, in it, we saw two specific things. We've, um, uh, we saw really the spiritual condition of God's people during the time of the judges. And let's face it, it's not looking really very good. Uh, and we've also been introduced to this cycle that we said is going to continue to repeat itself over and over again, especially between chapters 3 and verse 12. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look at that cycle now as it's lived out in the life uh, of God's people and uh, as we approach the very first judge of Israel. Now, one of the one of the challenges that I face every week in, in bringing a sermon uh, to you is... Um, When I'm looking at a text of scripture, like the one that's before us, and this is not only true for me, it's true for everybody who studies the word, is to look at a whole text of scripture, a whole passage, and and study it like crazy, but then eventually be able to step away and really be able to sum up the meaning of the text in a very simple sentence or idea or or even one single word. In in other words, you're, you're trying to study the whole text and then boil it down to its lowest common denominator. So when I'm studying to preach a sermon, I'm constantly asking the question, in the simplest terms, what is this text about? What is this text about? Because if I can't get to that, then I know that the sermon is not going to be clear for you. So, so what is it about? Well, as I begin to work on this text and begin to study through it and begin to work through it, one word and one idea kept coming through my mind of what this text is. It's insanity. All right. It's insanity. All right. Is what this text is about. Now, I I don't mean the word insanity because the text is incredibly difficult to understand. I I don't mean the word in that way. And and I don't mean as though it's so complex in so many details and there's a million different things going on that it's it's insane to be able to get your arms around it. I don't mean that because, in fact, the, the story is very bland, very plain. Uh, in, in fact, it's actually devoid of almost any specifics at all. All it does is state the facts. But what we're going to see is it's these very facts that really bring and provoke the mind to thoughts of insanity. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think it is as we carefully kind of work through it. Three acts of insanity that we see within the text of Scripture this morning. Uh, number one, this is what we see, the insanity of man's idolatry. The insanity of man's idolatry. Now, notice, if we will, beginning in verse 7, follow along if you have your Bibles. It says this, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Very next sentence is going to tell us what that evil was. And what we find is that it's really uh, made up of two specific sinful acts. The first sinful act that, that, dealt, that was described as evil before God dealt with forgetting, forgetting. Look, if, if sin, if forgetting is sin, then a lot of us are in big trouble. Would you agree? I mean, especially if you're over 40, I tend to be sinning by forgetting quite a bit. Now, what kind of sinning is this? When they say that they forgot God, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, understand there's different types of forgetting. You understand that, right? You may, may not have thought about this, but there's, for example, one type of forgetting might be that you know something, you forget it, and then somebody reminds you of it, and then you remember that you forgot it. Is that confusing? Okay, let me give you an example. Keys. Keys. All right. Notoriously, I forget where my keys are. Anybody else? 
walk inside the house, even though my wife has this nice little thing next to the door where I can hang my keys and she keeps putting my keys up there whenever she sees them around, I can't seem to get them on the hook for where the keys are supposed to be. So whenever I have to leave, I start searching for the keys. I've lost my keys. And then what happens is five minutes, which really seems like an hour. Anybody with me that I'm looking for this thing, I'm throwing things, where are the keys? And then finally I get the whole clan in on it. All right. And they're still young enough where I can go, hey, a dollar to the first one who can find it. I'll do it. Right. I know when they get older, it's like a dollar forever. And they're like, find it yourself. No, I mean, I hope they don't say that. I hope they love me enough to help me find it. But we're sitting there and they all and almost immediately one of them finds it. Right. And I'm out of buck. No big deal. I don't care. All right. Just find my keys. And one of them sits there and I said, I found it. And I go, where'd you find it? And they go on the it was on the washing machine. Oh, washing machine. That's right. I came in. My hands were full. I had a washing machine. I forgot. Right. So you remember once somebody reminds you another way of forgetting is uh, is completely different. It's being reminded of something that you have no recollection of that you ever knew before. Right. I mean, this is this is in other words, that whatever it was that you supposedly once knew completely wiped from your mind altogether, like grammar in high school or mathematics or whatever it is, you have no recollection that one time that you knew it. One of the examples of that, men, you, you're, you get this kind of forgetting. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of help you understand it better. Uh, you come home from a long day at work. Your wife says, did you get the milk? Milk. What, what do you mean milk? Remember last night I asked you to bring some milk home? No, still not, still not getting it. What, what do you mean? Remember when we were, right before we went to bed, we were laying down, we were watching America's Funniest mo- m- m- uh, videos. You were sitting there and you were within your shorts and, and your funny looking tank top. And there you were and, and you were drinking uh, something to drink. And I asked you if you'd get some milk and you said, can I get it tomorrow? I said, yes. You asked what kind of, this is how women are. They remember everything. Do you it, it, get 2%? And you said, okay, I'll get 2%. Can I get it when I get home, when I'm on my way home from work? I said, yes. She goes, you don't remember having that conversation? I got nothing. I got nothing, right? I mean, you compl- it's completely gone. Guys, you ever, you ever feel that way? Um, all those types of forgetting is not even the type of forgetting that he's talking about here. When he says that they forgot the Lord their God, he's not saying that they just they forgot, but they just simply need a reminder. They weren't saying that they had forgotten in that every thought of God and everything that God had ever done and everything that they'd ever learned about God was completely removed from their mind. Instead, when it says that they had forgotten God here, what they mean specifically is that, that there was no longer con- they were no longer controlled by what they knew about God. They kn- were no longer controlled by what they knew about God. That's what the Bible means when it says they forgot God. One author puts it this way. He says, though they knew who God was and what he wanted, those things were no longer real to them. Another picture of that would be their hearts grew cold to the notion of God. You remember learning something about God and coming to faith about God. And when you truly know him, there's a heat inside of your heart for him. And that heat leads you to obey him, to do what it is. It seems like his words are alive But all of us have experienced it over a period of time. Sometimes there's a fading away, a drawing away. And those those truths that were so hot in our heart begin to become a little bit more cold. And what does the Bible say? It says that it leads us away from God. And so the first sin that they take part in that God calls evil is that they forget. And that forgetting leads to the very next sin. And it goes from, from forgetting to serving. The moment that you and I begin to forget God in that way, that is that we're not living in light of what it is that we know to be true about God. 
our hearts grow cold towards him, it leads us to serving, and here's the key, other gods, false gods. From the one true God to a false God. Notice what the Bible says. It says, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, understand this. For the Canaanites, Baal worship was the happening thing. It was all about Baal. Baal was the god of storm. Baal was was the god of fertility. And for them, everything was about fertility. The fertility of their crops, the fertility of their flocks, the fertility of their their households. It was all about that. And so this was their god. And then we read about this Ashtaroth. And even though there's some debate about what exactly that refers to, uh, most believe that the Ashtaroth is actually the female goddess Right, who is a consort or companion of Baal. Do you, you get what I'm saying? Consort or companion, you understand what I mean by that? And so what would happen at the very center of Baal worship was 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 really um, was temple prostitution. And so in order to worship, you would come to the temple and there would be a Baal prostitute and then you would pay for their services. You would engage in the physical act and intimacy. And then what would you do? You'd walk away and that would be your act of service. Now, here's here's what they thought. They thought if they came and did that, that what it would do is it would somehow coerce or manipulate Baal and Ashtaroth to follow their example they would have physical relationships, and then the outcome of that would be fertility of their garden, of, of their livestock, of their children. You see how that works? This is, do you understand how, how that works? We have lots of kids. You understand how that works, okay? Um, so, so we understand. This is the way that they're thinking. So understand this, and they're thinking to get God, their God, to do what they need them to do is they need to manipulate or coerce him for their help, to, to be able to ultimately help them. And, what's, and what we see is this is the same gods, small g, plural s here. This, these are the same gods that the author of Judges says that God's people begin to go after, that they begin to serve. You see the insanity? Remember who they leave. Who do they leave? Their God, their God who loved them, who gave them a land, who gave them a hope, who, who, who prospered them, who was willing to give them anything they non, one, wanted. They didn't have to beg him. All they had to do is trust them with all of their lives. They lose that God who's going to give them all they need just to trust them for gods that have to be manipulated to be able to help them. Do you see the insanity? It becomes even more insane here. Uh, when we look back to chapter 2 and verse 14, because the Bible says that whenever we take part in that process, leaving our God in our worship, taking our greatest affections, our time, our energies, our greatest love from our one true God and, and, and placing them onto something else, our other gods, the Bible refers to that as as prostitution. Uh, in, in chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, for they Poured after other gods and bowed to them. What a descriptive and at the same time disturbing image. Serving other gods is equal and equivalent according to our God as prostituting yourself. Now, one of the saddest parts about prostitution, look, we don't have to go into detail of it. We understand it's, it's disgusting. It's, a, it's an awful sin for people to be able to take part in. But what is the saddest aspect of it? The saddest aspect of prostitution is that somebody gives themselves completely to another person who will never truly love or return any true care for that person. 
You're giving your all and the other person could care less for you. You're giving your all and the other person is never going to love you any more, uh, any more than that. They, they care for nothing. He says, that's what prostitution is. It was true for them. Their gods could do nothing for them, could not love for them, had no affection for them. And guess what? Your and my gods care nothing for us either. Now, look, I, I got to say this, and, and I don't know. I don't think it came across right in the first service. So let me let me use you to try to drive this home. All right. I, I love you. But people often sit back and go, bro, I don't have problems at all with false gods. I think they're thinking we're actually thinking of a little metal figure at home with incense burning and a little knee pad and then bowing down worshiping. I'm not talking about an idol that way. I'm talking about the idol of a bank account, of security, of health, of children, of the boat, of the home. Is anybody connecting with that now? I'm talking about those things. And you know it just like I do. Those things that fight for my affections away from God. Things that often that seem to rise and fall. That I'm more excited about that stuff and that thing than I am about my relationship with God and living for him and and walking in intimacy with him. And here's what I keep trying to come back to is it's insane. It's insane. Uh, Listen, your boat, as much as you love it, It's completely indifferent to you. You guys got that? You can wash it and wax it and armor all it. I don't know if you do that with a boat. I don't have one. Whatever you do with a boat, you could do all of those things. And you can die after taking care of it for years. And it will not shed one tear for you when you die. It will not miss you. It will be completely indifferent. My brother um, graduated from the University of Florida Law School. Big Gator fan. Love the Gators, man. He was all about them. Uh, he even gave a lot of money to, 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 the, or, to, to the university and to the football team, to the athletic program. And when he died, the football team didn't know any better. You, you got, the, he did get a letter, but it was a letter after his death asking for more money for the football team. You, you see that? There was no, hey, we're so, the football team wants to gather and minister to you. We love you. They had no love for my brother's passing and the same thing. Listen, stop and think about it. Whatever that is, some of you, I mean, your, your idol is, is, is sometimes your children and you say, but they can love me back. Not the way God can. Some of you are sitting there and you're living all for retirement. If we could just get, here's how you're living your life. If we could just get there, then we'll be faithful. If we could just get there, then things will change in our marriage. If we could just get there, if we just hold on. And what I'm saying is that, that, that retirement is probably your idol. Everything about it, your love and affections is being poured. It is directing your life. Listen, your retirement cares nothing for you. So it's insane. It's insane, is it not? To leave a God who has given you life, who has given you breath, who cares so much about you that he formed you with meticulous care in your mother's womb, who knows you so intimately that he can name the number and count the number of hairs on your head from one moment to another. And for me, that's a challenge. Okay, he can do that. He knows that he sends his son to die for you. He gives you life and he gives it more abundantly. He wants you nothing from you, but you for you just to entrust him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And for you and I to sit there and go, you know, I'm going to pass on that. And I'm going to love on my boat. I'm going to love on my bank account. Do you see what I mean by the, the scripture is full of sanity? It's insane. Let's see the second thing. 
We see the insanity of man's idolatry, but we also see the insanity of God's love. Verse 8 says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I understand, I realize right now that we're already treading on dangerous ground here. Anytime we begin to describe God in our culture as being angry, we're in big trouble. There used to be a time, and it wasn't long ago, that you could begin to talk about a holy God and his anger towards sin, and it would drive people in our culture to faith in God, to repent and to be able to turn from their sin no more. Now we talk about an angry God, and, and for people, it's completely unacceptable. For people, they, they receive it with complete disdain. It's repugnant to a forward-thinking society that we live in. At least they think they're a forward-thinking society. And so people will openly say, hey, listen, I, I have no problem believing in a God as long as he's a loving God. I just am not going to believe a God of wrath and a God of anger. I don't believe in that type of God. So I think Christians, we've dealt with this in a lot of long way, a lot of the wrong ways. Sometimes we've just tried to dismiss it and forget about it all, all together. And any kind of idea of an angry God in the Old Testament, don't preach on it, don't talk about it. Let's just let that lie. Maybe it will just go away. For, other, for some of us, we fall into moments of embarrassment as we're confronted with the world, as they begin to uh, really uh, create a caricature of an angry God and say, well, I guess you're saying that angry God is like a crotchety old man who's angry at the teenage kids because they trespassed his lawn. I guess that's what you're saying God is like. And sometimes we suffer from embarrassment, but other times we do even worse things. Sometimes what we do is we just ascribe or really adapt Really, a really bad theology. And I think that's oftentimes what Christians do. They'll sit back and say, well, listen, that was the God of the Old Testament. He says, but we serve a loving God of the what? New Testament. And, and right there, you know what the scriptures say, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Just newsflash, the angry God of chapter 3 is the God we serve today. You you, we, we get it, right? We get our arms around that. Same God then and there. One of the problems that I think we fail to see, and this is what you need to grasp, is that, is that God's anger and God's wrath is not necessarily in opposition to his love, but when it comes to his anger for his people is actually a demonstration of his love for those very people. Okay, let, let, me, let me break it down for you a little bit more. In other words, it's not in opposition. It's consistent with who he is. Here's one of the greatest mysteries of all. All right, the Bible teaches it. Great, one of the greatest mysteries of all is that God is passionately in love with you. And I don't get it. Do you? Now, I know some of you have high self-esteem and, you know, and, and, and some of you are like, yeah, what's there not to love? And that's another sermon we'll get to that, okay? Another time. But for the majority of us who understand and, and God has shown us for who we truly are in light of the gospel, we would sit back and go, yeah, man, it doesn't make any sense. There's nothing I can do for God that God can't do for himself. There's nothing I can give to God that God doesn't already have. There, there's nothing I can do in this. And, and, and so the, the miracle is that God loves us at, at all. The fact that he does is, I think you would agree, is a little bit insane. Because there's nothing really all that lovable about us. But you know what takes it even one step further into insanity? is that he not only loves us at our best, but he loves us at our absolute worst, even when you and I are neck deep into idol worship. That's exactly what's happening here. The people aren't serving God. 
What are they doing? They're, 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 they're serving false gods, but yet God's going after them. He's angry with them. He's, he's passionate. It's, it's a demonstration of his, uh, of his jealousy for them. Are, men, are you jealous for your wife's love? I mean, you're like, no, I'm not jealous, man. No way, man. I'm not jealous type, man. I'm I'm not. Well, well, then you're probably not in love with her. All right. Now, I'm not talking about weird, freaky stuff. Okay. I'm not talking about getting back and and some guy says hello and you're like, hey, you like him, don't you? You like him, don't you? Okay. Don't be weird. All right. But we're talking about if my wife, if if all of a sudden I I find out that, you know, she's every day at five o'clock, she talks to one of you for an hour on the phone. So what's up? What's up, my homie? What's going on? I'm just kicking back. Just sitting here. Yeah, making, making, I mean, I'd be sitting there going, hey, that's my hour. All right. That's my, my, my talking. Are, are you with me? And I know, look, I know I don't look very intimidating. 185, 158 pounds. All right. There, 158 pounds. All right. There it is. 158 pounds. I don't look real intimidating, but don't mess with my wife. All right. You got that? Because this Polak will be all up in your junk, man. You know, you should watch out. But there is a jealousy there that is natural. Why? Is because it's a pure demonstration of our love. His, his anger. Now, his anger is a demonstration of his love. But one more thing, and this might be even more insane. It's not even, only his anger that demonstrates his love, but also his discipline of his people. Okay, notice the next part. He says, and he sold them into the land of the Cush Rish Tham. Thank you, Dan, for reading that. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishmatham, eight years. Now stop and think about this. This loving God is, first of all, angry because he's jealous. The second step of his love is he places his beloved people in a place where they are going to suffer greatly into slavery. Let it grip you for a minute. Stop a minute. This is a loving God who is going to put his beloved people in a place where he knows there is going to be terrible pain and suffering. Is that not, is that not connecting with you at all? Because for me, in at least the fleshly side of me, this doesn't really sound a whole lot like love. I don't know what your ideas of slavery are, but they're not good. They're horrible. They're horrendous. And yet here is God sending his people in there. This is, you call this love? It, there's a part of us in the flesh that just calls this insanity. Insane. We don't even understand it. Well, let me ask you this. I was doing some research. Or let me tell you this. Research this last week, and, and I was trying to, trying, to, trying to really grab this story and understand it and see what it looks like for us. And I began to look at all these really terrible acts of, of actual news events that had happened and, and how many times it's happened, even in the last year, of, of parents doing despicable things to their children hurting them and harming them, just very, very scary stuff. And, and you just read the headline and you back up and, and you're appalled by it. Yeah, you're with me? Yeah, I mean, you, you, how can this be? There's, there's no love here. One particular title said this, says, says, son severs father's arm off. And I read it and, and threw it in the same exact thing, just repugnant. Didn't want to read it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, I began to read down into the details and it wasn't what I thought it was at first. What I begin to read is, is there was a man and his son who worked for the forestry both together on the same job. And there was some piece of uh, equipment where the man got his arm caught in and began to pull him in by his arm. And the son stepped in, immediately severed the arm from his father's body. True story. Severed his arm from his father's body. 
And you know what it says? It doesn't sit there and pick and talk and say, this son obviously doesn't love his dad. He was willing to put his dad in a place of pain. He cut, you read that from one perspective, it's completely gross. You read from the other side, the young man is a hero. Why? Because he stood up and he did something that he knew would be instantly painful for his father, but he knew that it would save him, save his, his life. It's exactly what God is doing here. God cannot allow his people to continue to worship false gods. He has to act. If they continue unrepentant, serving the things of this world, the outcome is what? Death and hell. So in his love, he's willing for you and I and them to be able to suffer temporally, to be able to, for us to do what? To save us eternally. Do you, do you see that? And we struggle. The Bible is very clear about it. First Corinthians 11, verse 32, Paul says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned among uh, along with the world. Now, the difficulty is, is, is look, if, if we think about it, is that the majority of us probably came to faith in the midst of suffering. Isn't that true? I mean, you, you ask people's opinion. What, what was happening? Well, uh, my wife left me. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And, and somebody ended up sharing the gospel in the midst of that. You ask somebody else, how'd you come to faith? Well, our, our son was in rebellion. We didn't know what to do. And, 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 and we were really looking for help. And somebody in the midst of that shared the gospel with us. And we were born again. Or my wife had, had cancer and, and we were trying to navigate through this. And there was a guy at the hospital that just came to us. And we thought, thought this was our greatest need. But they, they began to share that our greatest need was to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. For eternal life, our sin problem is the greatest problem. And so we see that God is consistent with that, that he's willing to, when you and I are fixed on things of this world, and look, this is, this is insane. It's even insane in Bible uh, context that God loves us so much that he would willing, willingly allow us and send us into a place of suffering so that we would see our need for him. Sounds insane sounds crazy Here, here's here's the crazy thing is some of us might be sitting there and you may have done some things and lived certain ways and right now you're suffering and you're wondering if god loves you and i'm telling you the difficulty that you're going through because of your sin is the very demonstration of god trying to call you back to himself and, and i realize at the same time that there are some man, there is no suffering at all that you're going through i mean it's not because you've done what is wrong you've done what is right the bible says you can do what is right and suffer for righteousness sake right and and, and you say but why 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 am i suffering is god not pleased with me am i not, not serving him and god is still taking even that type of suffering for righteousness sake to draw you to himself all the more it's it's a part of his insane love and it's right there in the text of scripture one more thing we want to see we see is insane in this not only do we see the insanity of man's um idolatry would, would you agree all right Worshiping all those other things, crazy, insane. Uh, we see the insanity of God's love. We see pretty insane, it seems like, at least from a humanistic perspective. Thirdly, the insanity of God's plan. Now, notice verse 9. The Bible says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up, the, uh, raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. So in, so last couple of weeks, we've been introducing this cycle we said that was going to come and, and go over and over. And, and the cycle really has four steps. God's people rebel against God. God delivers them and allows them to be oppressed, oppressed by their enemies. Then what happens? They repent and they call out for the help of God. God raises up a leader to deliver his people. Well, now we see the first leader that he raises up. 
Notice who he is. His name is Othniel, the son of Canaz. He says, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. And he went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and, uh, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Now, I want to point out one thing I think is glaring. We, again, we don't know much about this guy, Othniel. We were introduced to him back in chapter 1 in verse 13. Do you remember back when the story, when we said that, that Caleb came up and they wanted to be able to take this one city? And he offered to all the people, he says, anybody that could take that city, I'll give them my daughter in marriage. Do you remember that? He says, I'll get, nobody remembers that. Great. Um, so good. And he says, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. He goes up, he takes it, he gets, he gets his hand in marriage. Same Othniel, but here's the crazy part. We don't know anything else about this guy. They're not telling him anything about him. Doesn't tell us how he ends up winning the victory. Now, the reason this is odd, if you knew the rest of the book, you'd see how odd this is. Because everybody else, all the other judges, we know far more about them than we do Othniel. In fact, in fact, even Shamgar, who's mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 31, only one verse speaks about him. We know more about Shamgar than we do Othniel. And it's one verse. And what we're going to find is this is a book full of characters that, that, that their, their uh, personalities are larger than life. They are some of the coolest people in all the Bible. Next week, we're going to look at Ehud. Here's his name. The left-handed assassin. How cool is that? Right? Uh, and we're, we're going to continue on. And we're going, to see, we're, we're going to see some of the other guys that are mentioned within the word of God. We're going to see uh, uh, Gideon, uh, the, the mighty man of valor. Doesn't that sound good? Uh, uh, how about how about Samson, right? The long-haired hippie dude with great strength. All right, these are great names. These are the kind of names you want. I st- I really like that Ehud, the left the left-handed assassin. I love that. These are like video game names, superhero names. And then you have Othniel. He married a chick. You know, that's it. We just, he married this girl. That's that's about all we know about that. That's it. Sorry if I offended you with the word chick, woman beautiful, precious gift of God. Okay, there we go. All right, I'm bailed out of that. All right, so, so we understand. So not much is written, but, but let, me, let me suggest something to you just for a moment. Maybe, just, just maybe, that this was the author's intention. Maybe, maybe the story really isn't about Althea. Maybe what the author's doing is he's setting us up for the rest of the book and the meaning behind all these stories. Maybe just... When we get done, he, he, he could care less whether you remember Othniel. One author says it this way. It is, it is, is likely that we have the first episode in such stripped-down style uh, uh, precisely so that we will see clearly what is most essential, and that is the activity of God. What the author wants us to see is that God is the one whose plan is being fulfilled to save mankind. And that's what's crazy. That's what's nuts. Why? Because it's not man. Look, who's the one that sinned? God or the man against them? It's man who sinned against God. But who's the one that is initiating the reconciliation? It's God who's doing it. Now, now we understand that God is that, that God is using this man. He's raising up Othniel. But who's the one that's behind all of this? The Bible says the, so that it was it was God who was angered at the people. But it was God who did what? Who raised up this man? Uh, it was God who sold them into captivity. God raised up the deliverer of Israel. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. God gave the enemy and the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. God's at work all through this. Now I don't know if you see that as insane or not, insane or not. But maybe you don't live in the world that I do. 
when somebody wrongs me, now I'm talking about humanistically, not what the Bible tells us to do. But when somebody wrongs me, there's a part that I expect that if this is going to get right, they need to come to me. You got it? You guys not live that, you all live that way, I guarantee you, all right? If I come and smack your face, okay, not going to do it, don't do it to me. If I, it's just an illustration, all right? If I smack your face, you're going to go home, you're going to get angry, I'm going to read about it on Facebook. I get it, all right? I get it. Or somebody's going to tell me, because I'm not on Facebook, you're going to tell me, you're going to be angry, people are going to go, man, why don't you go talk to him? I ain't going to talk to him. He smacked my face. I'm going to go to him, he's the one that wronged me. If he got something to say, he needs to come back to me, right? I mean, that's how we work through that. Some of you, I, I, you, you look angry. I don't know what's going on, all right? So, so it's just an illustration. So I'm going to go to him. There's, an, there's a thought with us. If somebody has done us wrong, it's not the one who has been wrong that goes to that person who has wronged them to reconcile and make it right. It's the one who has wronged the, 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 the innocent party who is supposed to initiate what's going on. That's not what, how it works with God. These people were not looking for God. They said, what do you mean? They called out to him, but only when God initiated and delivered them over to their enemies and made them miserable enough so that they would call out for his mercy and grace. Do you see God working in this? So what he wants us to see is that the whole plan of salvation from beginning to end, the author and finisher of our faith is God. God is the one who is a part of this. And so what we know is that, 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 that this Othniel, he's not drawing attention to him. He's drawing God to this insane plan that he has that through one man, all the rest would be saved. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? And what I love about this is he, he wants us to know from the very beginning that even though we're going to see all of these men and even women who are going to be great deliverers of God's people, they're not it. They're just shadows of it. They're just shadows of what is ultimately to come. They're, they're, they're not the object. They're just the shadow. They're just types. What's going to come is the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to save mankind from their sins. God is going to initiate it. Listen, God initiated your salvation before the foundations of the earth. He called you. He drew you. He elected you. He said, wait a minute. I repented and believed. Yeah, you did. And you must in order to be saved. Here's the confusing part. Who gave you the faith to repent and believe? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He did. Who gets all the glory for that? God. It's insane. But here's, here's, here's kind of the kicker, though. Here's, here's where Othniel, and we're going to see that all of these judges still fall short of Jesus Christ, who is to come, who's ultimately going to save his people. What we see here is that Othniel, look at verse 11, and we'll finish with this. It says, and so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Next, next, next 12, verse 12, look at this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's what happened. As long as Othniel was alive, the people were saved and were free. The moment that he dies, they go back into slavery again. He's different than Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ came, as long as he was alive, we were enslaved to death and sin. But it took that savior, that judge to die to set his people free. Exactly what he did. Let me, let me ask you just a couple things. Is maybe you're coming in this morning and, and, and maybe, you know, we, we, we went over that part about idol worship. And, but maybe you came into the place going, man, everything is fine. Everything is great. But... I pray that the Holy Spirit has been working on your life and showing that people or other things are, are really taking your love and your attention away from who God is 
and you need to redirect and remember who he is. You need to understand that it is absolutely insane to find my 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 to find the fulfillment of my desires and my help in my time of need and anything else except for Christ. There's a little bit of repentance that we need to be doing, or maybe a lot of it. Maybe there's some of us in here that need to sit back and we just need to sit there and go, man, I just need to be overwhelmed by his love today. We're going through difficult times. We're going through hardships. But even in the midst of it, God doesn't stop loving me. He still loves me. And he's allowing this to go into my life as his life, as, as even a jealous God to have me to draw to him all the more. And maybe some of us are here this morning and, and this is what we needed to hear for the very first time. We just need to be overwhelmed by his grace and his mercy. That when, when we were saved, I know it seems as though we were going to him and God calls us to draw to him and God calls us to go to him and God calls us to, but God was working that whole plan out for you. And he deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise. The question is, have you come to him? Have you believed? Have you repented? Have you turned? Have you placed your faith in him and him alone? That's the question. Love to talk with you about that. You've got any questions about that? But really what we want to do is Ashley's coming. I'm going to pray. And what we really want to do is just allow God just to work in our hearts and us to respond to him, the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Jesus, we.